Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Last week, the January 6th committee met for the ninth time. The committee was set up to investigate the attack on the Capitol, pouring over the events of that day in excruciating detail. They're trying to understand how it happened and how to keep it from happening again. Reporter Luke Mogelson was there on January 6th. He spent the whole day moving through the Capitol with the rioters and filming. Luke has spent more than a decade covering conflicts. He's covered wars in Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. But for the past few years, it's been the conflicts brewing right here in the U.S. that have grabbed his attention. 1776! You're afraid of Antifa? Well, guess what? America showed up! As Mogelson sees it, what happened on January 6th wasn't an anomaly. It was part of a long series of events that came before. And that story isn't finished. So that raises the question, what's coming next? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Luke Mogelson is my guest today. He's a contributing writer for The New Yorker, And he's the author of a new book, The Storm Is Here. As he tells it, in order to really understand how January 6th happened, we need to go back in time a little further. You need to go back to one late April day in Lansing, Michigan. Well, it was the spring of 2020, very early in the pandemic. And I started to see news reports of anti-lockdowners mobilizing across the U.S. against public health policies attempting to contain the nascent pandemic. And in particular in Michigan, there was an event on April 30th of 2020 during which armed militia members occupied the State House in Lansing and accosted lawmakers and law enforcement officers inside the rotunda and attempted to access the legislature while it was in session and while lawmakers were voting on a pandemic policy bill. So when I saw that, I was interested to learn more about what accounted for this really striking outbreak of of rage and this threat of violence at, a again, a very early stage in the pandemic. It still baffles me how effortlessly we just skipped over <laughs> what happened there with the 
dudes with guns marching through a state capitol building. It feels like a long time ago. Doesn't it? Were you surprised by what you found on the ground here when you did start reporting out this story? Was the story what you thought it would be? Or was it totally different? I was surprised by how widely shared the sentiment of these militia members was. I was kind of expecting them to be outliers or fringe actors, not necessarily representative of a broad segment of the American public. But in fact, what I discovered in Michigan was that many people on the right viewed these attempts to control the pandemic as examples of an out-of-control government veering rapidly towards some kind of dictatorial, oppressive power that would infringe on their freedoms. It's probably all of the above, but (laughs) do you think of the crisis in this country as a political crisis, as a cultural crisis, an economic crisis, an information crisis, or some other crisis I'm not thinking of? Perhaps all of the above. I mean, I think that it's important to keep in mind that while there are certainly legitimate policy debates to be had about the differences between Republicans and Democrats with regards to the economy and and other issues, that's not what's motivating these Americans who are taking up arms and occupying state houses and who attacked the Capitol on January 6th and who are now engaged in an assault on the democratic process and democratic institutions. It's really not about the economy or other, you know, policy differences between the right and the left. It's a deep-seated fear and paranoia based on propaganda, conspiracy theories, and lies that have been fed to them by people with means and power who benefit from their outrage. Do you think we get here without Trump? I mean, he is obviously a symptom of a thousand deeper problems, but do we get here without him lighting the match, as it were? No, I don't think so. Throughout the course of 2020, while I was following these movements and groups, at every possible turn, he was so uncannily keyed into the exact thing he needed to say or gesture he needed to make in order to exacerbate their rage and exploit it. And I just haven't seen any other political leader be either willing or able to tap into that deep reservoir of fear and anger the way that he has been able to. Yeah, he really was kind of the perfect person at the perfect time. If what you wanted was to explode everything, he really is a kind of arsonist in that way. Right. You were at the Capitol on January 6th. What was that like? I'm not sure what you expected to find when you got there, but what was it like when you were there? Well, I had been in D.C. for two previous Trump rallies on November 14th and December 12th. The first one was the Million MAGA March, and the second one brought together the same groups and 
Trump supporters. And at each of those preceding events, I had witnessed violence perpetrated by the same groups that would eventually attack the Capitol on January 6th, the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, the Oath Keepers, the America Firsters. So when they returned to the Capitol for a third time, I was anticipating more violence. I didn't know where it would be directed until Trump's speech from the Ellipse when he told the crowd assembled at the Washington Monument, where I was also standing and, and watching his speech, to head up the mall to the Capitol. And that essentially just directed this rage that had been building, not just since the election, but since the spring of 2020 and the onset of the pandemic, to a specific physical target. Yeah. Told them to fight like hell. I believe. Yes, exactly. You know, it's the video you shot on that day kind of went viral. And it was so interesting in part because it wasn't just more footage of mobbish violence. I mean, that was important to see, and there was a lot of that going around. But there were these quiet, revealing moments where you can see these individual characters rummaging through the Senate documents or going through Nancy Pelosi's office and whatever, and you can hear them in real time. And it's very, very strange and a little absurd. Objection to counting electoral votes of the state of Arizona. Can I get a photo of that? And this is a theme that will probably reemerge <laughs> throughout this conversation, but the footage speaks to how, for me at least, how ridiculous and also horrifying that day was at the same time. I mean, so much of it is so cartoonish. You have these goofballs playing Keystone revolutionaries. There's the clownish QAnon Viking shaman that everyone now knows. You know, these are not serious people. But then there's this violent underbelly and sprinkled among the, I guess, earnest goofballs are guys decked out in military garb with handcuffs. And they clearly wanted blood. It's just hard to make sense of all that. It is, yeah. And it was such a surreal day because there was this almost schizophrenic toggling between scenes of terrible violence and genuine rage. And scenes, as you say, of kind of absurd, almost cartoonishness. Any chance I could get you guys yeah. to leave the Senate wing? We will. I've been making sure that ain't disrespecting the place. I remember at one point in the Senate chamber, there was a young man from Alabama named Joshua Black who walked by me at one point near the dais and was kind of looking around in awe. And I heard him mutter to himself, this don't look big enough. This can't be the right place. Like he, he just couldn't square the reality that he was experiencing with kind of his ideas or expectations of what the capital would look like. But then again, that same person had a, a rubber uh, projectile embedded in his cheek and was bleeding profusely. 
you know, down his shirt into his beard because he had been shot in the face by a Capitol Police officer. At one point, he sat down on the carpet and called his dad in, in Alabama and told him that he was in the Senate chamber and had been shot in the face with something. You good, sir? Do you need medical attention? I'm good, thank you. All right. I got shot in the face with some kind of plastic bullet. Just so people know, right, you were one of the first dozen or so people that climbed through that broken window into the Capitol, right? I mean, you were in the shit. Did the people around you know that you were press? Were they performing for you? Were they ignoring you? I mean, were you just kind of wallpaper or was it something different? They didn't know that I was press. I wasn't wearing my credentials outside of my jacket. And I certainly wasn't going around tapping people on the shoulder and introducing myself as a journalist with the New Yorker magazine. Yeah, good call. I didn't lie to anybody either, but I just, I did my utmost to avoid any interactions whatsoever with them and had my phone and was just filming everything, which actually didn't attract any attention or elicit any objections because many of them were also filming each other and and themselves. They were live streaming it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something you describe well in the book. And at some point, it really doesn't even matter why people showed up to the Capitol that day or what their intentions were. Because at some point, this mob psychology takes over and things go dark very quickly, which is why it's so infuriating to watch these grifters, especially in in conservative media, who don't believe a word of this stuff, but are financially invested in pumping out these fantasies that produced this moment. It's just maddening. And it was interesting, you know, over the course of 2020, there were many moments in which these grifters, these purveyors of conspiracy theories, marveled themselves at how successfully they were persuading and mobilizing the broader right. This reminds me of one event in particular in Atlanta where Alex Jones, Ali Alexander, and Nicholas Fuentes held a panel in the conference room of a hotel in Atlanta. And Ali Alexander, for those who don't know, is a conspiracy theorist and one of the primary organizers of the Stop the Steal movement that emerged after the election. Alex Jones is the well-known host of InfoWars. And Nicholas Fuentes is the leader of the America Firster movement, an out-and-out white nationalist youth movement in America. And they were having this conversation in late November about how remarkable it was that they had been able to spearhead a movement and convince relatively moderate Republicans to follow them. I think this is a good place to zoom back a little bit away from January 6th and talk about the people and the sentiments you encountered in your reporting around the country. That's really what the book is about. And Michigan, as we've already alluded to, is a key place. And some of the reporting you did there, and this is in the early parts of the book, is just really illuminating. Why did you think it was important to go there as a kind of anchor for the story? Well, Michigan was where the anti-lockdown movement really originated and spread from. And it also has this history of white Christian paramilitarism. The Michigan militia 
in the early 90s was the largest in the country. And it's where Timothy McVeigh attended several militia meetings before the Oklahoma City bombing. And it also is somewhat emblematic of many of the national divisions in the country, especially racial divisions, because you have all of these rural, predominantly white, conservative counties, and then predominantly black, democratic cities, in particular Detroit. So that just creates a lot of tension, especially in the political sphere, that really came to the fore in 2020. Yeah, it's a bit of a digression, I guess, but I just, I have to say it. For all the hysteria on the right over the protest and some of the riots that broke out in 2020, it really is astonishing. And I suppose revealing how quickly the people who were exercised by all of that forgot or willfully ignored the fact that mere months before the racial justice protest, there were these anti-lockdown protests staged by mostly white conservatives where people were literally brandishing firearms at state capitals, marching in desert camo with flak jackets and ammo vest. Before George Floyd was killed, while I was in Michigan with these groups, I was struck by how much of their rage and frustration was focused on law enforcement. At all of these anti-lockdown rallies that I attended, you had militia members and three percenters, but also just conservative citizens absolutely viciously berating police officers and comparing them to the Gestapo, Nazis, rats. And even when I would talk to them one-on-one, they would really go into how state troopers and local police officers were jackbooted Nazis and acting on the orders of this authoritarian governor and no longer, you know, legitimate or deserving of their respect. Then George Floyd was killed. I went to Minneapolis to cover the protests and riots. I stayed there for three weeks. Then I came back to Michigan and began attending these, what I thought were going to be anti-lockdown rallies organized by anti-lockdown groups. But in fact, they had pivoted to holding gatherings in support of law enforcement and backing the blue. And it was just basically a way of pivoting to oppose the demands for racial justice that had spread across the country in the wake of Floyd's murder. That reminds me, there's a story in the book about this guy named Dar Leith, who's a local sheriff in Michigan who refused to enforce the governor's executive orders during COVID. And he's giving this speech where he imagines this alternative version of the past in which the cops upholded the Constitution by not arresting Rosa Parks. And obviously the point here is that the heroic resistors of state tyranny during COVID are today's civil rights champions. Mm -hmm. And he, the sheriff, is the savior cop refusing to arrest them. I mean, 
Who boy, Luke, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, actually, the, the co-opting of the civil rights rhetoric and identity was a surprising feature to me of this movement, but it's very central to how they see themselves. And I actually think that at that level, it's not disingenuous. It's important, yeah. Like they really view themselves as victims of persecution and oppression and as kind of defenders of liberties in the same vein as Martin Luther King and, and Rosa Parks and frequently, frequently compare themselves to those civil rights leaders and activists. And by the way, just the group that organized that event where Sheriff Darleaf spoke also was at the same time circulating a petition for amendments to the state constitution that would include the dismantling and termination of its civil rights commission. <laughs> I mean, Look, something I'm going to do in this conversation, and I'm trying to do just in general, when having these kinds of conversations, is to not caricature the people I'm talking about. And you just alluded to the sincerity that you encounter. I mean, a lot of these anti-lockdown protesters sincerely placed mask mandates and concentration camps Mm -hmm. on the same level. Mm -hmm. Like these were equivalent affronts to liberty and human freedom. That is a batshit belief. And I don't want to dance around that, just to be clear. How is it that people come to hold that (laughs) and believe it? Well, you can kind of reverse engineer the question by looking at what that equivalence allows them to do and gives them permission to do. Yeah, Because once you've cast your adversary as essentially evil incarnate and as much of a menace to you personally and your country as Hitler was to his and to the world, that in turn allows you to take drastic action to address that threat and to confront that threat, including taking up arms, attacking the Capitol, you know, bypassing political and cultural norms attacking democratic institutions. Yeah, that's such a good answer because if you're going to take extreme measures and you still want to preserve some sense of moral integrity or moral righteousness, you have to find some kind of means ends logic that squares everything. And this is one way to do it, to sincerely believe that the threat you're countering is so significant and so existential that virtually anything is justified. Right. And by the same logic, I I think that that kind of explains why people on the right were surprisingly open to really outlandish conspiracy theories about the pandemic. Because if you're unwilling to make personal sacrifice in a time of national crisis, you're essentially at risk of being viewed as or characterized as unpatriotic, which is the antithesis of how these people see themselves, especially the more extreme groups. You know, they identify as members of a movement called the Patriot Movement with a capital P. So I think it was kind of necessary for them to view COVID as not a real threat, not a real danger, 
the result of a conspiracy in order to explain their own unwillingness to make sacrifices, to close their businesses, to go without work, etc. Not as bad citizenship, but as a kind of refusal to be persecuted and oppressed. Coming up after a quick break, what can a random barber in rural Michigan tell us about the broader story of the pandemic in the U.S.? Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Tell me about the the barber in the Michigan town who refused to close his shop during the lockdowns because this guy and his shop plays a big role in the book. And it's also a kind of microcosm of the broader story here. Mm-hmm. That was uh, Carl Mankey in Owasso, Michigan, small town in, in rural Michigan. And his refusal to abide by the governor's executive order to close personal care services and businesses became a real galvanizing flashpoint for anti-lockdowners and, and people on the right. And I visited the barber shop on multiple occasions in early May. And even then, you know, the people that were hanging around there in solidarity with Carl and traveling from even multiple states away to have their hair cut by him, were talking about revolution and rebellion and the need to resist these tyrannical measures by the deep state, the new world order, and the democratic elite. Yeah, he says at one point, and I didn't see the interview, you, you quote it in the book, but he says in an interview with Glenn Beck, I believe, and now I'm quoting, it's hardly my country anymore. How do you make sense of that sense of dispossession? I mean, in his mind, who took the country? And who does it belong to is maybe the more important question. Right. Well, that was an interesting comment coming from him in particular because, you know, he's in his late 70s. He grew up in Owasso and spent his whole life there. Yeah. And when he was young, Owasso was a sundown town. And African-Americans were not welcome there. So presumably, that is the past in the America that he was referring to. This is part of what I was talking about earlier, where race is hovering over all of this in really complicated, nuanced ways. And then at the same time, you have the people who are here imagining themselves as civil rights warriors. It's just, 
the contradictions, the juxtapositions are just bewildering. But that's part of the story here, as complicated as it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that if George Floyd hadn't been killed, if there hadn't been this national uprising against racism and police violence, a lot of that might have remained tacit and under the surface with these movements. But because of what happened in Minneapolis and across the country and the way that these groups responded, it came rising to the surface pretty quickly. So there's an element of this group, these groups, that is very overtly, self-consciously racist. And then there are a lot of people, probably many, many more people, who might appear racist from the outside, and maybe some of them are, I don't know. But the point is that they don't think of themselves as racist in any way. They don't believe they harbor any kind of ill will towards Black people or anyone else, and yet they are wrapped up in this movement that is being animated by, I think, pretty obvious racism. Mm -hmm. How do they square those contradictions? Are they even aware of them? Well, I think that the people that you're talking about are so invested in their own sense of victimhood yeah. that they can't imagine themselves as being complicit in an ideology that victimizes others. One anecdote that maybe illustrates this is the day after the election at the TCF Convention Center in Detroit, where mail-in ballots were being tabulated, a 100% white mob descended on the exhibition hall where election workers were counting the ballots and were chanting at them and, and screaming at them. And all of the election workers were Black. I was there observing this, and it seemed pretty obvious that there was at least an element of racial animus just in the air. While I was interviewing one of the white Republicans who had been yelling at the Black election workers, and accusing them of dishonesty and corruption and, and stealing votes, he received a text message and suddenly cut our interview short and said, I have to get out of here. And I asked him why. And he said that he had just received information that Black Lives Matter was outside the building. And I said, so what are you worried about? And he said, uh, being killed, losing my life. And so... I think that for him, that was not a racist way of looking at the world. It was just symptomatic of his deep-seated fear and paranoia and sense of victimhood. So from his perspective, in that scenario, he was the victim, not the other way around. There is a way of talking about all this that is easy and, and in some ways satisfying, where the people we're describing are these two-dimensional cartoon characters. And while I certainly understand, I know you understand that there are lots of truly terrible people in the country looking to do truly terrible things. The more important task, I think it's the task you were engaged in here, is trying to understand the antecedent factors that led here, trying to understand how millions of otherwise sane and decent people have come to hate their fellow Americans and really their country. Did you 
find yourself having more or less sympathy or even empathy for the people you were engaging with here? I mean, you even say in the book at some point that most of them, not all of them, but most of them were quite nice and, and gracious. Absolutely. I mean, one woman in particular comes to mind. Her name was Stacy. I met her in Harrisburg, the capital of Pennsylvania, on November 7th, the day that all of the national networks declared Biden the winner of the election. And a group of Trump supporters and armed militia members and Republican Congress members and other state politicians had descended on the Capitol in Harrisburg and declared that they weren't going to accept the result of the election. And Stacy, I had noticed kind of off to the side of this really raucous crowd, and she was on her cell phone calling a voter hotline, a Pennsylvania voter hotline, and reporting what she thought was evidence of fraud. She had been tracking the returns on a, on a government website and had all these papers spread out around her with highlighted statistics and felt that she had proof that the election had been stolen. She was actually from West Virginia and had taken a bus from her home with her mother, her elderly mother, to attend this rally in Harrisburg. There's absolutely no doubt that she was sincere in her beliefs because not only were all of the news outlets that she was watching telling her that the election had been stolen, but so were her elected representatives. Jim Jordan was there in Harrisburg. Doug Mastriano was there in Harrisburg. Dan Mauser was there in Harrisburg. These are Republican officials, and there were Trump campaign surrogates there. So everybody in her world was telling her that this is what had happened. I subsequently saw her at the November 14th rally, the December 12th rally. And after January 6th, she called me to ask what I had witnessed throughout the day because she had been unable to attend due to a a surgery. And she had seen reports on CNN and other news outlets about violence in the Capitol. And she couldn't believe that Trump supporters would behave in such a fashion. And she had heard from some of these same sources that had told her the election was stolen that Antifa agitators and infiltrators were actually responsible for the violence against law enforcement. The pandemic really crystallized, if that's the right word, how bad things already were. And if Trump threw gas on the cultural fire, it was probably the pandemic that really pushed us off the cliff. And I get the frustrations with the government's bumbling response to COVID, and it drove me mad at times. But at the same time, mistakes are unavoidable in a fluid, unprecedented, at least in our lifetime, situation like that. And the problem is that everything gets filtered through this culture war prism. And so what is actually just incompetence immediately becomes tyranny, or everything fits neatly into one conspiracy theory or another. And you put it well in the book. I mean, you say at some point that what we're talking about here is often a quote, a war fueled not by injury but by delusion. And this point about delusion is so crucial to me because it's somehow also so American. 
like you cover all these civil conflicts in other countries and regardless of how awful they are and they're always awful they're at least fueled by real material grievances <laughs> like what are we doing here man <laughs> you know what i mean yeah no absolutely and that was a really striking difference for me coming home to report on some of this violence and insurrectionary fervor was the fact that previously I'd mainly spent time with soldiers and combatants who, you know, had lost family members, whose homes had been bombed, who had been detained by the Assad regime and tortured and were fighting for their lives and for the lives of their loved ones. In the U.S., by contrast, almost everybody I met that said they were willing to fight and die for their cause were mainly animated by a fear of total phantoms and fabricated antagonists. Listening, or I guess reading in this case, people describe their rage over the COVID restrictions. I couldn't help but think, and you talk about this in the book as well, at least you reflect on it in the book. I couldn't help but think about how impoverished the American notion of freedom is. There is all this hysteria about one world governments and a world in which our lives are being reduced to a bundle of dependencies with nanny state overlords telling us what to do and where to go. And I'm just saying to myself, <laughs> what do you think your life is like now? Like, how would you describe a situation in which you must precariously sell your labor in order to survive, where your right to collectively bargain has been destroyed by the very people on whom you rely? for those life-sustaining wages, where you're a medical crisis removed from financial ruin. What kind of freedom is this? The forms of bondage we recognize in this country and the forms we don't is itself really fascinating and really revealing and really American. Yeah, absolutely. And I think some of that might be due to how insulated Americans have been from the past 20 years of warfare, real warfare, that our country has waged overseas and in other countries. And the fact that if there is this desire for violent revolution among a growing segment of our society, it's because most of us have never had to actually face the reality of what that looks like. Mm. You know, one interesting comparison is the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, which I covered for The New Yorker. I spent about a month in Liberia and Sierra Leone. And, you know, it was absolutely horrific. Ebola is vastly more lethal and contagious than COVID-19, obviously. And both Liberia and Sierra Leone had extremely minimal resources to deal with this true crisis ravaging their people. But they came together and they mainly from a very grassroots level were able to mobilize task forces, carry out contact tracing, do quarantines, 
and they limited and contained the spread of the virus much more efficiently and quickly than anybody expected. And these were countries that had recently endured real civil wars and violent conflict. And I think that that's partly what enabled them to deal with this threat in a humane and patriotic fashion rather than using it as a opportunity to exacerbate divisions. Something that was very dispiriting for me reading the book, the way a lot of these people describe Democrats and their political enemies, it just doesn't feel like politics in any conventional sense. It, it feels like religion. It feels like a religious drama in the minds of many people. This is light and dark, good and evil stuff. <laughs> and that's very hard to deal with. And something I'm still struggling with, and I just have a hard time getting my head around, are these two seemingly contradictory facts where, on the one hand, the threats we're dealing with now are very real and dire, and there are genuine maniacs out here looking to blow things apart. But at the same time, so many people involved in this craziness are so weirdly unserious. They're political LARPers. They're often lonely people wrapped up in an epic imaginary battle that probably started with a few shitposts on 4chan or something. And I don't know, I guess there's just something extremely 2022 about the fact that if we're going to have a revolution or a civil war, it's going to be the stupidest revolution imaginable because it's going to be fought over these, as you put it, phantoms. And it's going to be engineered by an information ecosystem that thrives on conflict and drama. And that stuff eventually becomes the line between fiction and reality gets blurred and it doesn't matter because people believe it. And then we have blood in the streets or on the floor of the Capitol. Yeah, and I think that that line is becoming increasingly porous. One interesting feature of some of these LARPer types or extreme right groups that dress up as soldiers and march in the streets is their use of paintball guns, particularly in their battles with anti-fascist activists. You see this a lot in the Pacific Northwest, particularly in Portland, with Proud Boys since 2017 descending regularly on downtown Portland to brawl in the streets and using paintball guns to kind of simulate tactical experiences by driving around in pickup trucks and shooting at anti-fascist activists. I saw this in Portland a couple times. And these guns look very much like actual assault rifles. And I think that it's a very easy step to move from paintballs to real bullets once you've become habituated to the former. Yeah. And we actually saw that in Portland last summer with Proud Boys coming to town and using a real gun and real bullets. Given all the reporting Mogelson has done, how worried is he about the future? That's coming up after one last short break.
I still struggle with how to describe the current state of affairs in this country. I certainly realize that things are in a very bad way and there are many reasons to be genuinely worried. At the same time, a brief glimpse at history will remind you how bad things have been before and how comparatively mild so many of our troubles are today. And I think there's a very human impulse to want to live in history, to dramatize the present so that it feels truly momentous. And sometimes that can blinker our intuitions a little bit. But you strike me as a very serious, sober observer. So I'll put the question to you. you know, how worried are you? Do you feel like we're really at a historically dangerous tipping point here? I think that what concerns me most is the buy-in from the Republican establishment to these movements. These movements are not new, as you say, and have been even more troubling in the past. But what's different now is how their fringe, formerly fringe ideas and worldview are becoming more and more broadly adopted and more and more explicitly endorsed by one of our two political parties. There's a pretty chilling scene at the end of the book in the afterword where you're sitting down with this guy named Chester Doles, and you can say who he is. And he's talking about how Timothy McVeigh was the Oklahoma City bomber, how he was trying to spark a chain of resistance. But the climate wasn't quite ready for it yet. And this guy Doles says that we're in a different place now and that the climate is ready now and that it's coming, whether we want it or not, in his words. I don't know if he's right, Luke. I, what do you think? Maybe he is, and I just don't want to believe it. So Chester Doles is a lifelong KKK leader and very prominent white nationalist activist. Going back to the 60s, he spent time in prison for beating up a black man, and he campaigned with his grandfather for George Wallace. He organized the largest neo-Nazi march in Washington, D.C., and now he's a pro-Trump constitutionalist, as he identifies himself. But he thinks that, as you say, the moment is ripe for an event like the Oklahoma City bombing to trigger a cascade of rebellion against the government by white Christians. And he's somebody who's been involved in these movements for decades. So I think we would be foolish not to listen to him and take him seriously. And I don't think we've taken seriously enough the fact that an event like January 6th should have shaken us out of our collective stupor, but it didn't. I think we, I think our news cycle absorbed it. I think we just kept rocking and rolling. And one of our two parties has just completely excused it. And that's what worries me. And this is something you've, you've alluded to, that <laughs> you have the Republican Party establishment appears not to have learned any lessons. They have ridden this tiger of culture war and racial resentment for decades. And it somehow remained a game for the most part. And it became real on January 6th. It became real when people were brandishing rifles and state capitals. And they were unmoved by it. And the fact that we now know, even most of the people working for Trump, 
knew this stuff about the election being stolen. They knew it was bullshit. And they just kept performing. And many are still performing. And the party is just kind of going along with it. Yeah. And at the same time, I think it's been incredibly emboldening for the extreme elements that spearheaded the attack. And, you know, just as Alex Jones and Ali Alexander and Nicholas Fuentes were celebrating their success at, you know, recruiting a broad swath of America to their hateful views and ideologies in the lead up to January 6th. I think that the lesson that all those same groups and pundits have taken from the attack on the Capitol is that they can interfere in the electoral process using the threat of violence without serious consequences. And most importantly, they can continue to undermine Americans' trust and faith in their institutions because ultimately people like Fuentes and Jones and Alexander, they're anti-government, they're anti-system. They don't want the democratic processes to continue to function. They want a revolution. They want something completely new that will enable people like them not just to retain power, but to exercise it with impunity. Do you think those types really want that, Luke? Or do you think they're just invested in pretending that they want that because their customers now want that? That's a fair question. I don't think that it really matters, though. And I honestly wonder to what extent they have the self-awareness to distinguish one from the other themselves. There's that. And at some point, it doesn't matter, really, because the consequences are the consequences. I hear a lot of talk about there's books being written about this, articles being written about the prospects of a civil war. This is obviously looming over your book. Part of me thinks this is a ridiculous concern, and part of me thinks it's terrifyingly plausible. Where do you land on that? I don't know. Honestly, now I think that the more imminent concern is the success that some of these anti-government iconoclasts have found in infiltrating the government. They're running for office now and winning primaries. And if they can manage to secure positions of power with influence over the electoral process, they're going to use it to change the system from the inside and make it less fair, less democratic and more amenable to their illiberal objectives. I mean, I, I certainly think you're right that, that some of this stuff is becoming more mainstream now. And obviously the storm metaphor works pretty well here. But the thing about storms is that they pass. And if you're right, what we're really talking about here isn't a storm. It isn't even the weather. It's the climate. And that feels much more daunting. Right. And, you know, whether or not there is an actual outbreak of large-scale violence, the threat of it is now the climate that you're referring to. And that threat, I think, is one of the objectives of the people who wield it. 
You know, the night that the Capitol was secured, when Congress reconvened, Mike Pence took the gavel and said that violence never wins. But that same night, 147 Republicans voted against certifying the election and essentially sided with the mob. Since then, more and more Republican officials who initially condemned the violence have come around to supporting Trump and downplaying what happened on January 6th. You have election officials all across the country quitting and retiring because of the threats that they're getting from right-wing propagandists. Democratic members of Congress retiring because they can't deal with the death threats against them and their families. You have Republicans saying that their colleagues voted against impeachment because they were afraid for their lives. So I think that this kind of constant background threat of the possibility of violence is doing a lot of work already. It's basically a demand side problem now. And that's tough to rein in. Right. And I saw this early on in Michigan, you know, after that initial occupation of the state house in Lansing by our militia members, the legislature suspended, canceled their next vote on pandemic measures because they were afraid of attracting another armed mob to the Capitol. So there you saw, even in the spring of 2020, the ability of the threat of violence to shut down a state government. Well, there's no easy way to put a bow on this. So I'm just going to put a bow <laughs> on this. <laughs> the book is The Storm Is Here. It is a great piece of writing and really storytelling. So I highly recommend it. Check it out, people. Luke Mogelson, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Sean. Eric Janikas is our producer. Amy Drostovska is our editor. Patrick Boyd is our engineer. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. And A.M. Hall is the boss. So I know this was a heavy, intense conversation. It was for me, at least. There's a ton to unpack here. We'd love to know what you thought about it. Shoot us an email at thegrayareaatvox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with all your friends, leave a review, all that stuff really helps. Episodes of our show drop Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply.